New Zealand, which had gone over 100 days without a single new case, shuts down parts of Auckland after a cluster of cases emerge. Cases in some of America's biggest hotspots, including Texas, Florida, and California, are beginning to level off or decline. And there will be no college football for the Big Ten or Pac-12 this year. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, and I'm going to be missing Michigan football this year. My first full-time job was as a scientist working in an epidemiology research group at the University of Michigan. My first research project focused on disparities in adverse birth outcomes, like premature birth and infant mortality. My first data set involved data about all the births in Michigan over five years, 617,451 births total, if you're asking. Every day for a month, I'd spend the better part of my day staring into huge data sets with information about hundreds of thousands of people. At first, I'd have to clean the data painstakingly working through it to figure out how different hospitals had coded different variables, identify missing data, and figure out how it might affect my findings. Only after weeks of this cleaning could I get to the fun part, testing my hypotheses. That meant mastering a statistical analysis program called SAS, short for Statistical Analysis System, and generating lines of code to command the computer to deliver analyses. Now, this should come as no surprise, because by now you all know that I'm a serious nerd, but the first time I got results, I was hooked. The exhilaration of knowing that I just learned something new, that I could share it with the world, and that policymakers might use it to decrease infant mortality or improve maternal health, that was something I'll never forget. It's still one of the singular thrills of my life. After months of additional research, writing up our findings, and the back and forth of peer review, watching that article come out, be shared with the world, was uniquely rewarding. Scientists do science because we fall in love with the process of discovery. We love the notion that we could unlock a hidden truth that could help save lives. In the process, we learn a language through which we can communicate with scientists all over the world, a global community of people who've come together to discover and share and hopefully help. But most of the time, we toil away in the background. Most of the time, you have months to keep refining a data set or quibble over the merits of one analysis versus another. Most of the time, you're not facing this. A new early study by researchers at the Los Alamos National Laboratory shows that the coronavirus may be mutating. But there is hope from some new studies suggesting people who've recovered from the virus do become immune. Now, a new study out of Germany... And most of the time, your findings don't make global headlines the minute they're published. The scientific community usually has time to work out mistakes and reach a consensus in our understanding of a disease, its course, and its treatment. But COVID-19 has fundamentally changed all that. With hundreds of thousands dead and dying, millions of livelihoods lost, and the world waiting on our findings, scientists don't have the kind of time, the same kind of anonymity that they used to. Mistakes happen. Corners are sometimes cut. Or some forsake the science entirely for a few minutes in the limelight. A medical journal has announced that it is retracting a study, a published study, on the drug hydrochloroquine. Or the politics literally trump the science. It is extremely successful, the hydroxychloroquine, but many doctors think it's extremely good. But science is a process, and like all processes, it takes time. Ask a baker about the precise time it takes to allow the yeast in a dough to do its work, and the dough to rise. Ask them about the time it takes for the bread to bake. Rush it or cut corners, and you miss the mark. Worse still, science is explicitly about taking bias out of the process. If you allow politics to influence it, you are doing the exact opposite of science. 
And that matters because if you rush it or cut corners or bias the outcomes, you get it wrong. And when you're talking about a science that is asking questions about how to save lives in a global pandemic, getting it right is literally the difference between life and death. Today, we're taking a step back to talk about the epidemiologic research process and how epidemiologists work hard to get it right and sometimes make mistakes. We'll meet Professor Kerry Keyes, an epidemiology professor at Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health and one of the sharpest minds in epidemiologic methods, and my former colleague, after the break. Our guest today is Professor Carrie Keyes, who is an associate professor at the Mailman School of Public Health. Um, she was a colleague of mine back when I taught, and we actually had offices down the hall. Uh, and every day I'd see, I'd see Carrie just completely killing it at epidemiology. And that was one of the moments when I realized I was probably probably not smart enough to, uh, to keep up. So uh, really excited to have Professor Keyes with us uh, here today. Um, Carrie, thank you so much for, for, for joining us. Thank you, Abdul. I'm happy to be here. We're stepping back. You know, th- there is in this moment this constant onslaught of research, of course, because we are dealing with a global pandemic that has fundamentally frozen society in some profound ways. And of course, the more we know, uh, the better off we are in terms of being able to to tamp down this this pandemic. Now, the problem is, is that epidemiology is painstaking work and you really have to do it right. And the hard part is that there's this implicit push between fast and right. And uh, and so I wanted to to step back. I know you don't study COVID-19, which is actually you know part of the reason why I thought you'd be the perfect guest, um, to, to really help us understand what epidemiologists do to wring uh, truth out of you know sets of data. And so, you know, big picture question, like what is the process that epidemiologists use to analyze data and come to conclusions? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. Um, And I think a couple of key points that we can use to frame the discussion is there is going to be a trade-off between the questions that you have and the data that are available to answer those questions. Um, So, you know, you might start out with a question of public health and clinical relevance, and then you look for data that have um, characteristics that allow you to answer that question, right? Uh, Alternatively, you might have access to a large trove of data, right? You might have access to, um, you know, incredible clinical data warehouse, for example. And then you construct the types of questions of public health and clinical relevance that can be answered using the data that you have. Um, So those two are, are, you know, can can trade off. So one of the points that you're making right away is that, you know, we may start with a set of obvious questions that can help us take on this pandemic, but really, in some ways, we're limited to the data sets that we have, and that puts primacy on the quality of those really limited data sets, because, of course, COVID-19 is something that we've only been really dealing with as a species for seven months. Um, and so, you know, that, that really is helpful, because sometimes it seems that researchers try and answer questions that they have with data sets that can't necessarily answer them and then back their way into an attempt to answer it. And that's sometimes where trouble happens. That, that's absolutely correct. And I, and I would say that's what, you know, when you bring an epidemiologist on the team, uh, you know, I feel like more often than not, someone will come with a question and a data set. And what we're trained to do in epidemiology is, is to try to see how well those two things match or do not. 
And sometimes you have to say to someone who comes to you with a question in a data set, this, these data are not appropriate to answer the question that you have. And people don't like to hear that because sometimes it can seem like the data are uh, germane to the topic and it takes some training and some skill in order to recognize the types of comparisons that you need to have in data to answer the question that you have. So, you know, as we go about this process of, of asking questions to data, what are some of the sources of bias? You know, bias is one of those terms that in normal life people think of as, you know, some either deeply buried or on the skin surface level, you know, general opinion that you come to a problem with. But bias in epidemiology is frankly, you know, it is it is what we spend most of our time thinking about. And so as an epidemiologist, how do you think about bias? What are some of the sources of bias that creep into our studies that help, you know, that, that help explain why sometimes we get wrong answers? Um, that's a really good question, Abdul. There are really three central sources of bias that we think about a lot in epidemiology and, um, and we handle these types of biases either in the design stage, so we design studies that overcome those biases, or in the data analysis stage. We analyze data in order to try to minimize the impact of those biases. And the central one is this concept of confounding, that if you're comparing a group that has been treated with drug X and a group that has not been treated with drug X or a group that has been exposed to a certain exposure and a group that hasn't been exposed, that those two groups might differ fundamentally on other things that cause the outcome. And so if you have someone who's treated with a drug and someone who hasn't been treated with a drug, the reasons why someone is treated with a drug versus a different drug or not with that drug might have something to do with their prognosis or their survival probability. And so that's a really big issue in epidemiology. Um, one way that we overcome confounding is by doing a randomized controlled trial. You know, that's when you, when you hear that, you know, we need a randomized controlled trial on a certain topic, that's because when you just observe people who happen to be exposed or treated versus those who don't happen to be exposed or treated, they're just too fundamentally different in order for us to make causal inferences from their comparisons. And so you, you need some kind of experiment that would allow you to draw more inference. So that's a, that's a really, really important insight. And we, we've been hearing a lot about randomized controlled trials. And basically what you're, what you're telling us, right, is that the world doesn't treat people the same way. And it may be the, the ways that the world chooses who ends up getting a treatment versus who doesn't get a treatment may in fact explain what the outcomes we see of that treatment really are rather than the treatment itself. But the idea of, of randomized controlled trial, like what, is, what does that mean and, and why does that actually solve the problem? So typically in a randomized controlled trial, instead of just observing what happens to people who happen to be exposed or treated versus those who didn't happen to be exposed or treated, we as the investigator assign the treatment, you know, in a random fashion. And, and the reason why we do that is because if the randomization is successful, then all the differences between those who were randomized to the drug versus those not randomized to the drug, all of those other things that cause the outcome, such as your prognosis, your underlying risk factors, your comorbidities, those will be equally distributed between the groups. And so when you have that equal distribution of the other causes of the outcome, um, you can draw more inference about the effect of the particular exposure that you randomized. But I do want to make one point, which is that I think there is also a danger in epidemiology and clinical medicine of privileging the randomized control trial above and beyond these 
observational sources of data where people who happen to be exposed and not exposed. And, and, you know, there is a danger on the other side of saying only randomized controlled trials can give us, you know, robust inference, which is definitely not the case. You know, we've seen over and over again that observational epidemiology, we call it, or, you know, data that where the exposure hasn't been randomized generate really critical insights. And through data analysis that is careful and, and well-conducted um, and study designs within observational epidemiology that are creative and leverage variation, you know, we can have a really important impact on public health and clinical medicine outside of the situation of the experiment. So I just want to make the point that you know, the reason we do randomized controlled trials is to control this thing called confounding. Oftentimes, the randomized controlled trial is unethical, unfeasible, or, you know, too expensive. There's a lot of different reasons why you wouldn't do a randomized controlled trial. And observational epidemiology plays a really important role in our ability to treat patients and understand public health problems. And, you know, one of the one of the interesting things about this is that Sometimes, just like in, in any space of life, people tend to go to the extremes, right? If it's not a, a randomized control trial, then it doesn't mean anything. Or, you know, we don't need randomized control trials because we've got really good data evidence here. One of the things that uh, I know motivates both you and I, um, you know, when I, when I did this kind of research, was trying to understand disparities in health. And of course, one aspect of this moment we cannot forget is, is the fact that we are having a reckoning about racial injustice in our country. And one of the things that's really hard to study is racial health inequalities, because of course you can't randomize people to having a race, right? And when you can't randomize someone to having a race, you're left to observational studies, which of course leaves a lot of pointing and saying, well, here are all these other confounders. Uh, here's all these other systems of bias. And the reason I bring this up is because we have to remember that all of these are different tools in a toolbox. And these different tools should be used for different things. So if somebody wants to you know, infer what kind of treatment uh, is better to treat a particular disease, that's a place where randomized control trials really are the gold standard. And unless you have randomized trial evidence, it's really hard to say for certain that this is the treatment that you should use. Versus if you want to understand something about you know, racial inequalities in health or where someone lives and how that affects their health, you know, observational epidemiology is what you have, and there's some really, really good tools that help you to address the biases that exist in the real world to, to come to an inference. I, I want to ask you, you know, once you sort of write up a study, can you tell us about the process of peer review? Um, you know, it's something that uh, people talk about a lot now that there's, you know, these, these fancy websites that didn't exist when I was uh, a professor like MedChive, uh, where people put pre-peer review studies up there before they're reviewed. Can you talk about what that process looks like? How long does it take and, and um, how does it work to, to help to, to sort of pull the cream off the top of, of the research that, that is done? Sure, I can talk about it. Um, so typically, you know, I, I mean, peer review in general before kind of talking about it is, is a blunt and imperfect tool, um, but it, it is, it's probably the best tool we have in scientific medicine to evaluate the quality and rigor of the science. And so what happens is you write up, you do a data analysis or, you know, some kind of scientific project and you write it up uh, for a journal. Um, and then you submit it to the journal. 
there is an editor who will look it over and uh, we can say it, it can be desk rejected, right? Back in the days when like physical papers would come across your desk, the editor is going to be the first pass to say, you know, this meets benchmarks of, of quality um, kind of in a broader sense. It fits the scope of the journal. Um, it fits the, you know, the, the type of research the journal is interested in. If it passes kind of that level, then it goes to peer reviewers. And so the editor will invite people who have published on a similar topic um, or experts in the field, um, you know, people that would be appropriate to judge the ins and outs of the data analysis and the study design and things like that to peer review the paper. If you agree to peer review the paper, you get two to three weeks to read the paper, write any comments that you have, any critiques, and then you make a recommendation to the editor of, you know, this paper should be accepted, this paper should be rejected, um, or, you know, this paper is good, but it really needs some major revisions. And so then you start a process of um, the peer reviewer and the authors where, you know, the peer, if it, if the peer reviewers say, you know, this is a good paper, but it really needs some uh, changes, then those comments will get sent to the author. The authors have a chance to respond, revise their paper. Then it goes back to the reviewers who look at those comments. And there's that back and forth that happens until the editor has decided whether they can make a decision at that point. So um, in, in the kinds of peer reviews that you get, um, most of the time they're not saying, I agree or disagree. What they're saying is, here's some more analysis you should do, or here you may be over-interpreting what your analysis actually did, or here you may be misstating the question that you're actually asking with the tools that you use to ask them. Because um, I want to be clear about that, right? So, so sometimes there is, you know, in science, um, oftentimes we think about the outcomes as being the part that mattered. And really the only two parts that matter are the question that you asked and the competence with which you, you tried to answer it. And that's really where the peer reviewers focus, no? Um, and, you know, have you, have you found that there's like variation in the, in, in the quality of peer review towards that end? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think you're entirely on point, especially in the, in the world of epidemiology. It kind of goes back to what we were saying at the beginning of our conversation where, you know, it's really about the appropriateness of the data that you have for the question that you have. And, and you know, sometimes um, a paper will be perfectly fine, but it just doesn't answer the research question that it set out to answer. And yeah, there is a lot of variation. It varies by discipline. Um, you know, you get editors will get a number of different peer reviewers to try to triangulate on some opinions, but some peer reviewers go into a lot more depth than others. You know, it's an imperfect process because a peer reviewer might not be totally appropriate to the topic at hand um, or might be too busy to really read the paper in a lot of detail. Um, you know, so so that kind of that kind of thing happens. You know, um, I think everyone goes into the peer review process with well, most people go into the peer review process with very good intentions, um, but things slip through the cracks and, and it's, it's really difficult, especially as someone who does peer review a lot, you know, you might have five or six papers that you've agreed to peer review and you've kind of got to get through them. Um, and, you know, so it, sometimes it's difficult to completely go into every single aspect of the analysis. So th this sort of gets us to the, the big question right now. And usually when we're doing epidemiology, you, you want to be quick, right? Because if you feel like you have an answer that matters, you want to get it out in the world. But rarely are you doing it under the gun, i.e. there's a global pandemic that you want to answer basic questions about that the world needs to understand. And, you know, in science, haste 
can be one of the biggest enemies of good science. Um, and unfortunately, we've been seeing this right now with a number of high-profile papers published in some of the highest-profile journals in health being retracted, you know, after the scientific community takes a second look and you have like sort of broad public peer review and people saying like something doesn't quite add up here. What do you think really explains some of these more public flaws um, in some of the research on COVID-19? And what does it tell us about both what's working and what's not working with the scientific process? It's interesting um, because I think that what's happening from my vantage point being outside of the, the COVID-19 research world, by and large, what's happening in, the, in COVID-19 research is what happens in, in all research. You know, this is, I don't, I don't think there's anything that's all that different with the frequency or the types of issues that come up in academic medicine that come up in every other field. You know, a lot of times there is good faith mistakes that happen in the peer review process, happen in analysis. Um, that is, that's part of the scientific process and peer review is there to hopefully kind of serve as some kind of, um, you know, catch all for, for these different mistakes, but, but it does happen. The difference with COVID-19 is that the world is watching. You know, so one, I think these mistakes get picked up more often, hopefully, which is great. Uh, and two, when they do get picked up, it gets amplified across the world and it becomes an indictment of the peer review process or of the process of medicine. But in fact, that's the process working. You know, I, I think that's the important part because the people doing the research are humans. And yes, going slower, taking your time, you know, double, triple checking every single thing and acting in good faith are all um, critical parts of the scientific process. But as you say, in a global pandemic, sometimes you don't have that opportunity. And so things are going to happen faster. There might be more mistakes, but to to use that as an indictment of the overall process of academic medicine and the peer review process, I think is, is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, Cause this is the process. A lot of folks are now starting to take an interest in, in reading scientific literature in a, in a new way. And, you know, in some, in some respects, it's a great thing, right? People really stepping up and saying, you know, this information's out there. I can take a look at it myself. In other respects, you know, you have some nefarious actors trying to use a lot of this to politicize a pandemic. I mean, I never thought I would see an email from a Republican senatorial committee about the the study results of a hydroxychloroquine study. Um, but but here we are. Um, what are some of the rules of thumb that, you know, as people read maybe secondhand results of a study in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, what are some of the, the rules of thumb that people can bring to this and get a better sense of, you know, what the study design was, whether or not it addressed some of the, the bias issues and, you know, how much investment they can put in the outcomes? That's a really good question. I think that, um, you know, it, it really has been fascinating, especially during during COVID-19 to see the some of the some of the papers that you and I and, and other people who've been trained in epidemiology would dismiss as um, papers that were perhaps hypothesis generating or not strong designs. You see them being publicized in ways that are not, are inappropriate to the rigor of the study conducted. Um, and so I think it's very difficult for the average person to read the literature on COVID-19 and try to determine what is 
what is reliable information and what is, you know, too soon to draw conclusions. And I think that in terms of advice, what I would, what I would say is looking at the, um, looking at the study design and the comparison groups, um, you know, who is being compared, what is the, and, and especially what is the unexposed group? Where are they drawn from? You know, whether it's people who are being treated versus not treated um, or people who are being infected versus not infected, you know, that unaffected group, uninfected group or untreated group is really going to be the linchpin uh, oftentimes of the, the validity of the research. So if there's no comparison group, that is a red flag. If the comparison group is different than the treated group in really important ways that are very obvious to the reviewer, that is a red flag. You know, what are the sources of selection into, uh, into, the, into the study? Um, those are all things that even a lay reader, I think, can think about um, when they're evaluating the, I, I think, the things to not think about or the things to that get a lot of attention but are not indicators of validity per se are the um, the journal. You know, uh, oftentimes people will say, well, this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This was published in the Lancet as if that is an arbiter of quality. And while those journals are high profile and, uh, you know, they have a uh, track record of high quality science, uh, the journal itself, and as we've seen from these retractions, you know, the journal itself cannot be used as a stamp of scientific rigor. So the journal, the authors, you know, each study needs to be evaluated for its own merit, not the scientific history of the authors, not the institution of the authors. You know, you'll say this study came out of a, you know, high profile institution. Therefore, we should believe it more. That's not the case. So these kind of superficial indicators of that some might use, I think, are mistakes in terms of judging the validity, you really have to look at the actual science itself and especially the comparison groups. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, you made two really powerful points there. Epidemiology in particular is a science of contrasts and the better the contrast, the better the quality of science. And most of the time we're searching for a really good contrast. That's like what makes a great study great, right? Is that you had a really, a really good contrast that was rigorous and could help you to understand the impact of a particular thing. Second is, you know, this moment has really um, has brought out, I think, some of the best and some of the worst in public health and healthcare science. And it reminds us that I often think about science as a language. It's a language that you you try and get really good at speaking. And the nice thing about science is that, you know, the minute you can speak the language, you can speak to any speaker and you can understand what any speaker is saying. And it doesn't matter if somebody is the professor of that language, right? There is, you know, you can have any one person in the room say, mm, you know, I hear what you're saying and I disagree with that. You know, we had some high profile uh, scientists early on. And there was a circumstance with, you know, one of the legends of epidemiology, John Ioannidis at Stanford, who had said some relatively iconoclastic things turned out to be flat wrong. And some of the studies that they pushed out, you know, by Ioannidis and colleagues at Stanford, um, that in a lot of circumstances, you'll have scientists be like, well, if Ioannidis said it, it's got to be true get looked at and say, well, you know, I don't know that I agree with this. And in fact, it may be that the reason you did this study wasn't for, you know, pure purposes, you know, and so it, it reminds us that the beauty of science is that it is an objective language and all of us have the the ability to to look at it and to practice it and to ask basic questions and make sure that there are competent answers. And also 
you know, just because somebody has has a great track record of speaking the scientific language correctly doesn't mean that everything that they say is correct. And and this has been a really important moment for us. Um, as more research comes through and starts to contradict what we had previously thought, how does the scientific community change its opinions? And what does it take for consensus to shift? And I asked the same question, in effect, to Dr. Fauci um, about masks, right? There was a consensus that masks should be saved for healthcare professionals based on the assumption that there was no asymptomatic or presymptomatic spread of COVID-19. Ergo, people shouldn't necessarily wear masks out in public because they're not really protecting anybody. That changed entirely once we came to appreciate that actually the likely route of transmission was, or a large proportion of transmission was presymptomatic, asymptomatic, and in aerosols. Um, what does it take for the scientific community to change its opinion? And how should a casual reader, a listener, um, be thinking about when those sort of changes are coming? Yeah, I'm not sure that there is, you know, one single answer for how consensus changes. Um, but I do think one thing that both the scientific community and the lay reader need to keep in mind is that is that single studies that are published or, or that are highly publicized um, are, are not the way the consensus grows. Like that's not the actual way that science occurs and that it's perfectly normal and expected for our opinions to change as new information comes to light. And if each one of those pieces of new information is put in the spotlight, which it will be with COVID-19, because this is obviously a huge, you know, one of the, the largest public health crises of our time. So everything is going to be in the spotlight. Um, and I really think that that is damaging for the, the science um, because it's hard to contextualize the way in which the building blocks occur and the way in which science slowly progresses towards answers in so many other uh, fields and, you know, other epidemiological questions. Um, so I think that both the scientific community um, and the lay public needs to be flexible and needs to understand that because we thought one thing a month ago or two months ago and we think another thing now does not mean that science is illegitimate, does not mean that there are people acting in bad faith. Uh, it, and it does not mean it, this is good. Like, this is what we want. We want opinions to change. And, 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 you know, I think the problem with all of public health, and we see this time and time again, you know, COVID-19, again, is not the only time this occurs. But, you know, people will say, well, first they told us not to wear masks. Now they tell us to wear, to wear masks. You know, who... You know, there's no scientific consensus. Who can you trust on these topics? And you've seen the same thing over and over again across many areas of epidemiology. You know, first they told me that eggs were bad for me. Then they told me that eggs were good for me. You know, seatbelts, were, are they bad or good? Do, you know, turns out they don't help in crashes or they do, right? Like this has happened time and time and time again. And so just recognizing as a public health community that part of our role is translating that science in ways that help people make better decisions um, and not shepherding our audiences, especially lay audiences through those messages and say, First, we thought this, then we got some new information. Now we think this. Um, 
is probably going to be the best way to make public health progress. But for everyone to know that science is a rapidly moving field, opinions and thoughts are going to change, um, and you kind of have to go with the flow a little bit, especially with with a very, very novel um, exposure uh, where we don't know a lot, that science is going to shift very rapidly. All right, so we got one more question. Um, uh, this is a final question we ask everybody. Uh, how are you spending these days? It's like not a fun question, Abdul. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, how am I spending these days? Well, I, you know, I'm up in the Catskills for the summer, um, with my son and we're trying to be outside as much as possible. Um, you know, I've got a lot of work to do. And so, you know, I'm still cranking through epidemiology every single day and trying to, you know, get some science done while still enjoying the outdoors, doing a lot of swimming, a lot of barbecuing, um, and right. generally we're having a really nice summer, uh, as yeah. much as can be expected. Um, so thank you for a great conversation about, about science and about how we think about making sense of a, a very challenging, but also, um, really exciting and dynamic moment in public health science. Um, you know, I, I think if, if we all sort of keep to the fundamentals, I think we have uh, an opportunity, not just to, uh, get to the heart of some of these really important questions, but but also, um, I think more broadly, help to educate folks about how science actually works in the moments when it's not under the spotlight. Yeah, well, I just one one kind of final thing I would say is that I think I think what what we've seen in other fields of epidemiology and in clinical medicine is that really the the one of the ways that improves the rigor of our science the most is having that interdisciplinary team. You know, if you only have people on your team who are clinical scholars, clinical researchers, you're not going to have the breadth of rigor that you need to inform things that an epidemiologist can inform. And that epidemiologist is not going to have the same skills as a biostatistician. And frankly, beyond epidemiology and biostats and clinical medicine, you need an anthropologist. You need a sociologist. You need people who can really think about your study in ways that move beyond just, you know, is P less than 0.05. And so I think that I would that would be my main recommendation as this area of, of medicine moves forward is to broaden and deepen the disciplines that inform your interpretation of the study results. Well, I really, um, I really appreciate that insight and really grateful to you for coming to help us uh, dig through um, what some of the fundamentals are and, and how we can take them on. And uh, you stay safe, enjoy the cat skills and Thank uh, you. we'll get to see you soon next time in uh, next time we're in New York, hopefully when this is all over. Yeah. Great to see you. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. President Trump and his donor turned postmaster general are attacking the U.S. Post Office. Things like eliminating overtime, restricting how and when postal trucks are deployed, and even taking mail sorting machines offline. They argue that these reforms are needed to help the post office, quote unquote, break even. First, that's absurd. The United States Postal Service is a service, not a business. In fact, it's hallowed in the U.S. Constitution. It doesn't have to break even. That'd be like asking if the military or fire department was breaking even. Second, it should be obvious what the real motives are here. These quote-unquote reforms are happening just in time for the November election, one where millions of Americans will have to vote by mail to protect themselves in the midst of a global pandemic. Trump is trying to undermine vote by mail by scaring voters that if they elect this option, 
They'll risk their ballots not arriving on time. It's a ploy to suppress votes. Trump even said it himself. Well, they're right, and it's their fault. They want three and a half trillion uh, billion dollars for the mail-in votes, okay, universal mail-in ballots. But if they don't get those two items, that means you can't have universal mail-in voting because they're not equipped to have it. This is as cynical as it gets. Beyond failing to curtail the pandemic, Trump is now weaponizing it for his own political ends. Force Americans to choose between voting by mail or exposing themselves to illness in hopes that they won't vote at all. On the other side of the world, another authoritarian made news this week. Vladimir Putin announced that Russia had a COVID-19 vaccine, despite the fact that the vaccine has not undergone rigorous testing in a phase three vaccine trial. That's like a biomedical Chernobyl waiting to happen. It is straight up scientific malpractice. As we discussed last episode, trust in a COVID-19 vaccine is already alarmingly low. News that any government, even if it's not our government, could okay a vaccine without rigorous scientific testing could shake that trust further. But one has to ask what the motive is. It's hard not to see nefarious motives from a government hell-bent on destroying public trust of government. In America, we've got the opportunity to shore up our own government, and that means a new president and vice president. Last week, you got to hear my little girl, Emily, tell you to adopt Michigan, which of course you should do. But this week, I get to tell you that that little girl, who's half Indian, could get to see herself represented in one of the highest offices in the land if Senator Kamala Harris, who is also half Indian, is elected vice president. And that's a pretty special thing. To help out, we need you to sign up for Vote Save America, where you can adopt a critical swing state to help beat Donald Trump, which, by the way, should be Michigan. Go to votesaveamerica.com to sign up. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takaya Suzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening.